0: Welcome to Stratford Mail, a production of Stratford Hall Historic Preserve, where the voices of American history still speak. Find us on the web at stratfordhall.org. This episode of Stratford Mail has been made possible by the generous support of Chapter 23 of the Colonial Dames of America. Here now is our Director of Research, Dr. Gordon Blaine Steffi.
1: This month, a group of Virginia patriots receive a portrait they didn't want by an artist they hadn't commissioned in place of a portrait they paid for by their preferred artist, which they never received. The British Parliament's 1766 repeal of the odious Stamp Act on Paper Goods led to commemorative efforts in British North America. Some commissioned artworks, others renamed towns and hamlets in honor of British politicos who spoke openly against the tax. Pittsylvania County, Virginia so named in 1767, commemorated the celebrated role of William Pitt the Elder in opposing the Stamp Act. In Westmoreland County, Virginia, commemorative efforts focused on Charles Pratt, recently titled the Baron Camden, whose opposition to inequitable colonial policies like the Stamp Act and the Declaratory Act rested on his extensive judicial experience and legal acumen. Commemorative efforts slowed down as Americans despaired of achieving redress of their grievances through the normal political process and the sympathetic support of British heroes like Pitt and Camden. Stratford-born Arthur Lee, a newly minted physician with a taste for politics, placed himself in Parliament to hear speeches by Pitt and Camden, who were old friends and political allies, on the subject of repealing the Stamp Act, which Arthur later remembered would have immortalized him as orators and statesmen. Bells rang in Philadelphia on the morning of May 19, 1766, when a ship bearing news of the repeal docked in that city. Celebrations might have been dimmer had Philadelphians paid attention to the act passed on the very same day the Stamp Act was repealed. The Declaratory Act was a blunt statement of the British government's unlimited authority over the American colonies. And it took the shine off the repeal of the Stamp Act by smoothing the way for future revenue bills. The King's
2: Majesty with the advice and consent of the lords and commons of Great Britain, had, hath, and of right ought to have, full power and authority to make laws and statutes of sufficient
1: force and validity to bind the colonies and people of America, in all cases whatsoever. While well, the great commoner and Whig politico William Pitt seesawed in his support for some declaratory statement of British privilege over the American colonies, despite his vigorous opposition to the in all cases whatsoever clause, Charles Pratt, the Lord Camden, made the unpleasant subtext of the Declaratory Act explicit by tying it to the question of revenue and taxation. As the affair is of the utmost
2: importance, and in its consequences may involve the fate of kingdoms, I took the strictest review of my arguments. I re-examined all my authorities, fully determined if I found myself mistaken, publicly, to own my mistake and give up my opinion but my searches have more and more convinced me that the British Parliament have no right to tax the Americans. I shall not therefore consider the declaratory bill lying on your table. For to what purpose, but loss of time, to consider the particulars of a bill, the very existence of which is illegal, absolutely illegal, contrary to the fundamental laws of nature, contrary to the fundamental laws of this Constitution? a constitution whose foundation and centre is liberty, which sends liberty to every subject that is or may happen to be within any part of its ample circumference. Nor, my lords, is the doctrine new. Tis as old as the constitution. It grew up with it. Indeed, it is its support. Taxation and representation are inseparably united. Lord Camden concluded his critique even more forcefully. The forefathers of the Americans did not leave their native country and subject themselves to every danger and distress, to be reduced to a state of slavery. They did not give up their rights. They looked for protection, and not for chains, from their mother country. By her they expected to be defended in the possession of their property, and not to be deprived of it, for, should the present power continue,
1: there is nothing which they can call their own." Captain's speech went viral. It was reprinted in the Scots magazine in 1767 and in the London magazine in 1768, where a running header summarized the speech in these words, No taxation without representation. And just like that, a slogan was born. In the end, Lord Camden was one of five in the House of Lords to vote against the Declaratory Act, which passed by the considerable margin of 125 to five. By June 1766, a group of Virginia subscribers, many of whom had backed the Leadstown Resolves, empowered Richard Henry Lee to commission a portrait of Lord Camden. From the wish we entertain that all
2: future judges may be induced, from a contemplation of this worthy judge's picture, to recollect those virtues, the possession of which procures Lord Camden the love of his
1: country. To that end, the subscription paper directed the portrait to be hung conspicuously in the Westmoreland County Courthouse. Charles Pratt had become Chief Justice of the Common Pleas in January 1762, making him one of the three most important judicial officers in the British Empire. In his four years of service as Chief Justice, he made several key rulings, but perhaps none so popular as his decision to discharge from prison John Wilkes, a journalist and member of Parliament for Aylesbury. Wilkes, pleaded parliamentary privilege when he was arrested for libeling King George III in his publication, The North Britain No. 45. Parliamentary privilege protected members of Parliament from arrest, except on charges of treason, felony, or breach of peace. Government lawyers argued that since libel tended to breach the peace, Wilkes wasn't covered by privilege. But Charles Pratt ruled that while libel might tend toward a breach of peace, it clearly wasn't a breach of peace as such. Wilkes was discharged to the joy of metropolitan radicals, and Pratt enjoyed a glow among radical Whigs. Parliament soon withdrew the protection provided by parliamentary privilege for seditious libel. John Wilkes was tried in absentia on a charge of obscene libel for his pornographic parody titled Essay on Woman, which included a charming kinda well-turned couplet on the male parts of then Prime Minister John Stuart, the third Earl of Bute and favorite of King George III, and that ill-advised literary endeavor earned Wilkes expulsion from Parliament. Arthur Lee of Virginia visited Wilkes at the Tower of London in late 1768 when Wilkes, just returned from self-imposed exile in France, was incarcerated on an outstanding conviction. Thus began a productive political alliance, and Wilkes later remembered Arthur as his first and best friend. Meantime, Charles Pratt distinguished himself in a ruling that informed the Fourth and Fifth Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. In English law, promiscuously broad general warrants allowed law officers to search unspecified places and persons and to seize whatever they wished, with few exceptions. Probable cause as we understand it did not exist, and colonial law enforcement largely mirrored English practice. Wilkes and 48 others were arrested under a general warrant in the libel case that was prompted by the North Britain Number no. 45. But in 1762, four agents of Lord Halifax, Secretary of State for the Northern Department, executed a general warrant at the home of London pamphleteer John Entick, they were fishing for evidence of seditious and libelous papers printed in the periodical The Monitor. Officers spent four hours tossing the Entick house and were later found to have caused some £2,000 worth of damages, equivalent today to around 400000 US dollars. Intick sued for damages in 1765, and in Intic v. Carrington, the presiding judge, Lord Camden, reasoned, If it is law, it will be found in our books. If it is not to be found there, it is not law.
2: The great end for which men entered into society was to secure their property. That right is preserved sacred and incommunicable in all instances, where it has not been taken away or abridged by some public law, for the good of the whole. By the laws of England every invasion of private property, be it ever so minute, is a trespass. No man can set his foot upon my ground without my license, but he is liable to an action, If he admits the fact, he is bound to show by way of justification that some positive law has empowered or excused him, if such a justification can be maintained by the text of the statute law, or by the principles of common law, if no excuse can be found. The silence of the books is an authority against the defendant, and the plaintiff must have judgment. According to this reasoning, it is now incumbent upon the defendant to show the
1: law by which this seizure is warranted. If that cannot be done, it is a trespass." Camden held that Halifax had no right either by statute or precedent to issue such a warrant and awarded assessed damages to Entick, whose case helped to shape future reflection on the basic tension between personal rights and the state's need to collect evidence for use in prosecutions. To the Virginians seeking his portrait, Judge Camden was a consistent champion of civil liberties and an opponent of state overreach. His role in the Stamp Act debates and eventual repeal was simply a recent case in point. On June 1st, 1767, Richard Henry Lee asked his relation and agent in London, Edmund Jennings, to carry this letter to Lord Camden. Wonder not, my lord, that the people in this remote
2: part of His Majesty's dominions revere your lordship's character, since there is no part of the British Empire but feels the influence of Lord Camden's virtue. America in particular must ever regard your lordship as the patron of its liberty, the best possession of human nature. Prompted by gratitude, they entreat your lordship will condescend to accept their humble thanks, and favour them with permitting your picture to be taken, that it may remain a memorial to posterity of their veneration, and of the inestimable benefit derived to British America from your lordship's protection. I have the honour to be with the most
1: profound respect, my lord, your most humble and obedient servant, Richard Henry Lee, an accompanying letter to Jennings transmitted 76 pounds eight to engage a portraitist, a fee that would include the portrait, a plain gilt frame, and shipping costs. But while the subscribers preferred famed British portraitist Joshua Reynolds, founder of the Royal Academy of Arts, Richard Henry preferred to engage an American, specifically Benjamin West, who worked chiefly in Pennsylvania before resettling in England in 1763, and eventually succeeded Reynolds as president of the Academy. Money permitting, Richard Henry requested a full-length portrait of Camden attired in his judge's robes. In a curious twist, it had already been done. A full-length portrait of Judge Pratt in his judicial robes by Joshua Reynolds had been hanging in London's Guildhall since February 22, 1764. Richard Henry concludes his remarks to Jennings with apologies for tasking him, but he remarks, I thought you would not be displeased at this testimony of our esteem for the Patriot,
2: whose virtue has saved our common country.
1: In his return letter of November 10th, 1767, Jennings replied that he was indeed ambitious
2: of receiving and executing.
1: This particular directive as he shared their esteem for Camden and mentions not only his successful approach to Camden, who was now Lord High Chancellor in William Pitt's government, but also his view that Benjamin West was the properest person to be
2: employed in this business. He is ambitious that his hand should be the means of perpetuating American gratitude.
1: In a letter one year later, Jennings reports a series of almosts in his efforts to bring Camden and West together for a sitting. And the undertow of the letter is that it's unlikely to happen anytime soon, if at all. In something like an apologetic gesture, Jennings ships a substitute portrait in the meantime, an eight-feet-by-five-feet painting of William Pitt, now Lord Chatham, done by Marylander Charles Wilson Peel, relatively new to painting, certainly new to portraiture, and just then studying under Benjamin West in England. Jennings' half-brother, Judge Beale Bordley of Annapolis, helped to finance Peel's study abroad and equipped him with a letter of introduction to Jennings. As to the substitution of Pitt for Camden, Jennings explained this to Richard Henry.
2: But as the honest cause of America hath been supported by the true liberality of that great man, Lord Chatham, I could wish that his merits were not forgot, and therefore take the liberty of sending you by Captain Johnston his portrait, which, if you think is worthy of the acceptance of the gentlemen of Westmoreland, I beg you would offer them in my name."
1: William Pitt had been created the Lord Chatham in 1766, which didn't fit terribly well with his popularity as the Great Commoner. Now, the expression gentlemen of Westmoreland is something of a misnomer for the portrait subscribers, three of whom were women subscribed in their own names. These women were Hannah Corbin, mistress of Pecatone Hall, about 20 miles downriver from Stratford, and sister to Richard Henry Lee, Elizabeth Steptoe, mistress of Stratford Hall, married to Richard Henry Lee's brother Philip Ludwell Lee, and Anne Steptoe, Washington, future mistress of Harewood Plantation, sister to Elizabeth Steptoe, and wife of Samuel Washington, George's younger brother. In a letter dated August fifteenth, seventeen 1769, Jennings would finally explain what happened with Camden. I should have been happy if I could have sent that of Lord Camden but the last time I made an
2: application, he expressed himself nearly in these words. "'You cannot but imagine that the compliment which hath been paid to me by the gentlemen in Virginia is highly flattering to me, and that I should be proud in complying with their request. But consider the present situation of affairs and my station. I think the colonies cannot doubt of my disposition towards them. I am in greatest hopes,' that things will take such a turn next winter, that I may without
1: impropriety comply with the promise." While his appreciativeness may have been sincere, Camden had a knack for keeping his place while the political terrain shifted around him, and sitting for the Americans was too impolitic for his ambition. Though Jennings wasn't ready to concede on Camden, Arthur Lee proposed shifting the sitter from Camden to Whig leader Lord Shelburne, a friend and ally of Pitt and Camden, and cultivated by Arthur Lee for his conciliatory stance toward the American colonies. Now that shift didn't happen, but in 1784, Arthur named his Lansdowne estate in Urbana, Virginia for Lord Shelburne, who was by then the Marquess of Lansdowne. On April 21st, 1769, the Virginia Gazette published notice of the arrival in Westmoreland County of Charles Wilson Peel's masterly performance of William Pitt. The portrait, ripe with warnings, portents of revolution, arrived at Chantilly on April 7, 1769, and it hung there in Richard Henry Lee's home until his death in 1794, when it shifted to Stratford Hall, hanging there until 1821. Stratford's owner, the ill-reputed Henry Lee IV, the last Lee to own Stratford, would soon be compelled to sell Stratford to cover his debts. But in advance of that sale, he made good on the intent behind Jennings' gift of the Pitt portrait, namely that it belonged to the folks of Westmoreland County. Lee had the portrait and relevant papers delivered to its new residence, the old courthouse in Montrose, where its new adventures began, a story for a different day. An American historian and biographer of painter Charles Wilson Peel had this to say about the Pitt painting.
0: It is hard for us today to appreciate the Pitt portrait, this young man's effort to present a hero in heroic terms. To present-day eyes, it is not good portraiture, not even fine art. It is an inflated political cartoon...
1: This grand canvas, which stands at the headwaters of the revolutionary struggle, expressive of all the anxiety, defiance, confidence, and hope of those early fractures and strains, must be experienced in person. And you should do just that this September for a special event.
0: Join us at Stratford Hall on September 9th, 2023 for an exciting symposium. Pitt, Peel and the Patriots, a collaborative event put on by Stratford Hall, Preservation Northern Neck and Middle Peninsula and the Westmoreland County Museum. This day-long symposium features several engaging talks from diverse experts on the history of Peel's portrait of legendary British politician William Pitt, analysis of its political and artistic significance, and close study of the art and value of reproducing the portrait for Stratford Hall. The symposium opens with a keynote address at 1pm and concludes with a reception and viewing of the original portrait from 615 to 7.30pm, Distinguished speakers include historians, artists, and conservation professionals. Seating is limited, so be absolutely sure to reserve your tickets today. Ticketing information and a link to purchase your tickets are available at stratfordhallorg events programs Once more, that's stratfordhallorg events programs Are you traveling from distance to attend? Stratford Hall offers elegant, affordable lodging. Reserve your room at stratfordhall.org stroke lodging. And finally, dear listeners, don't you dare forget to subscribe. And if you wish to express your support for more programming like this one, please give at stratfordhall.org stroke support. And thank you for listening to Stratford Mail.